Life is made up of lots of different people, isn't it? Lots of different types of people. Your big picture, grand sweep people. Your dot every I and cross every T people. People who 20, 30 years after they bought an item can then return it to the box that it originally came in, repackage it looking like the day it was bought and pass it on. And then people who tore the box apart when they opened the item, knowing full well it would never last 20 years with them anyway. Right? These are the contrasts in people we get. And neither group really fully understands the other group. Those box-keeping weirdos. Anyway, so let's talk about COVID, for instance. I love being controversial. I think people's response to COVID, the vaccine and lockdowns, was largely the outworking of their personality and worldview. Those who find comfort in structures and boundaries and those who like to kick against such things. I don't know too many personalities that changed through COVID. I know a lot of personalities that got expressed through COVID, right? So, so it's actually people's worldview that tended to shape their response. The truth is that we're all just here for a moment. If you live to be 100, it's a moment. Your lifespan is the blink of an eye. You might pay attention to details. You might not. You might fastidiously study history and learn how it applies to today. You might not. You might obsessively plan for the future. You might not. You might simply enjoy each day as it comes. But no matter what you do, plan or don't plan, you will not change your allotted days. Only God sits outside of time. God is seeing Moses on Mount Sinai as he sees you here this morning. All time is open before God. He knew full well that newfound health kick you decided to go on and then quit when he allotted your days, right? It's all in the sum plan and purpose of God. He spoke the world into existence and weighed it all up from start to finish. And you have a very, very small moment in that time. The reality is, no matter who you are, each of us with our own distinct personalities all have the same wrestle. And that is, we are each drawn to living like this span of days is all that matters. We are each drawn to acting like this short time of life that we have is what should command our attention, either through meticulous planning and detail or by just living in the moment. Either option says this is what counts. God knows the full picture. And in our passage this morning, 
we will see that and it should give us comfort that despite our struggles with living for eternal glory, God has it all in hand and ultimately it's His will that counts. That's what we're going to look at together this morning. All right, if you have your Bibles, let's open up to John chapter 19. We're just going to read 28 to 30 to begin with. John 19, 28 to 30. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Amen. Jesus knew that everything was finished. Now, of course, that doesn't mean every tiny little bit was finished. He's obviously about to do some more stuff right now on the cross. But nonetheless, he's saying atonement and paying the penalty of our sin. He knows that his mission is drawing to a close on the cross. At that point, in order to fulfill Scripture, Jesus says, I am thirsty. So did Jesus lie to fulfill Scripture? No, of course not. He was fully exposed in the heat of the sun. In fact, dehydration was a known part of the torture. You were fully exposed in the sun and left there to hang. But he is aware that his mission is nearly fulfilled, and in declaring his thirst, he mobilizes the guards to give him a now, we don't actually know for sure which scripture Jesus was fulfilling or he was choosing to allude to here. It could be Psalm 22, which we looked at last week, and you can read through Psalm 22 again yourself if you would like to at some stage. Or it could be Psalm uh, 69, verse 21, says this, Instead they gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Now, the point of all of this is that right throughout the Gospel of John, right throughout the whole Gospel, but most incredibly over the last probably couple of months, we have seen person after person unconsciously playing a part in God's plan for our salvation. As we've gone through, if you think about the sweep over the last number of weeks, people have unconsciously played a part in God's plan for salvation. Who? Well, let's think about the Sanhedrin, the combined council of Pharisees and Sadducees together have planned the murder and execution of Jesus and in doing so are unwittingly fulfilling the plan and purpose of God. Pilate, the, the Roman governor, who is sitting there trying to hedge his bets, trying to make sure he stays popular with Caesar, he is unwittingly fulfilling the plan and purpose of God. The Roman guards at the cross dividing up clothes. All of these people are unwittingly playing a part in God's sovereign plan for our salvation. Some of them fulfilling prophecies that are literally thousands of years old. However, 
in stark contrast to that. Jesus, God in the flesh, who knows the beginning from the end, who knows the full plan and purpose of the Father and his role in it. Jesus is not unconsciously playing a part. Jesus is the God-man who is acting in perfect obedience to the plan of the Father. And that's what John wants us to grasp. John is highlighting for us the perfect obedience of the Son, the perfect sacrifice, the Holy Lamb of God. Jesus left his throne on high for this moment, to die in agony with the Father's face turned away by plan to bring you to the Father. No accident, no adrenaline in the spur of the moment, but the definite love of God and obedience of the Son that took him to the cross. Jesus is acting in full awareness of playing his part in God's plan. And so Jesus drinks. The drink that he is offered here is not to be confused with the wine mixed with myrrh, which Jesus refuses on the way to the cross. That was a sedative designed to dull the agony. And Jesus was fully resolved to go to the cross bearing the suffering the Father had assigned to him on our behalf. And so if you remember in the Gospels, he refuses that sedative. This was different. This, far from being a sedative, was a little bit of liquid, which if anything would just prolong life and pain. And this wine vinegar was a well-known drink that was a cheap, sour wine used by soldiers. And so this is what Jesus was offered. And then, said so simply, we have this profound and incredible line. Jesus declares it is finished, and he gives up his spirit. This word finished means that the work of God is completed. What work? The work of paying the penalty of our sin, of saving those who deserve damnation, of bringing people to God forever. At this point, at this moment of the cross, all of those who are God's are already glorified, we are simply waiting on the full realization of it. At this moment, your glorification is complete. The price has been paid. Christ is risen and we are risen in him. It is finished. There is no debt to pay. There is no work to do. There is no indulgence to be bought. Christ has finished the work of rescuing us forevermore at this moment. Do you get that, church? Done. Complete. If you give your life to Christ at that point in time on you, he says, justified, declared perfect through the blood of Christ, no more debt to pay for anything ever again. It is finished. 
That's why we sing this song. It's called It Is Finished. We sing it all the time in this church. One of the verses says, There's no sacrifice to offer. There's no penance to complete. Freely drink of living water without money. Come and feast. It is finished. It's done. The joy of Christ's victory has changed everything. Because we are not under law. We're under love. Love is the fuel that drives and motivates our Christian walk. You know, I've, I've, I've mentioned this before and I've kind of done this illustration before and, and it always works, but I don't want to just go through all that time today, you know, but I could literally just pull, you know, someone out of the crowd here. Um, I don't know, who are we going to look at? You know, James Marsman over here. James is looking at me going, oh no. But, you know, if I said, James, you know, I'm your... Master, you're my slave, and you must do whatever I tell you to do. Uh, and that means literally, if he's a slave, he must do what I tell him to do. And then I say, James, I order you to spend time fishing, uh, catching tuna, eating seafood. Uh, and James is going to be like, Yeah, I'm pretty good with that. Right? These are things James loves to do. Fair, James? Yep. So, right, here's the thing because it's finished. Because Christ has done everything necessary for salvation, He then fills us with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is conforming you to the image of Christ. He's making you like Jesus when you've given your life to Jesus, which means you will love what Jesus loved and hate what Jesus hated. So, Jesus loved to obey the Father. That's what we're seeing. And so if you are being made to be like Christ by His finished work, then you will begin to love to obey the Father because that is who you are becoming. That makes sense? Right? That, that's now who you are. You're becoming like Jesus. Now, the old nature's there fighting you still, but the new nature, the nature of Christ in you, will become like Christ and hate the sin that Christ hated. And love the obedience that Christ loved. Right? This is now who we are by the inward transformation of Christ in our life. We are not under law. We're under love for the one who died for us. And we're being made into his likeness by the Spirit who compels us to love the things of Christ. There's another side to what this means. I hear people say to me, Jesus is not as close as he used to be. I don't know why I can't stop this sin. I think it must be harder for me. No, it's not. Here's the truth. You've simply given your heart to something else. That is your problem. No one can serve two masters. With Christ as your master, you love him, serve him, and want to be like him. When you love something else, you serve it. And then the commands of Christ seem tiresome. His presence seems distant. Forsake the master you replaced Christ with. Give your heart back to Jesus and the joy will come back. Right? This is the Christian walk. If Christ seems distant, work out what it is you're loving instead of Christ. And there'll be something. And turn your heart back to him. And things will change. Guaranteed. So Jesus dismisses his spirit. It's important. Only he has the authority to lay it down. 
The Romans and Jews were guilty of murder. That was their intention. They believed they did it. But Jesus dismisses his spirit. He is God in the flesh, and only he has the authority to give up his life. All right, next part of our passage, John 19, 31 to 37. John 19, 31 to 37. Since it was the preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a special day. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other one who had been crucified with him. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified so that you also may believe. His testimony is true and he knows he is telling the truth. For these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Also, another scripture says they will look at the one they pierced. Don't you just hate it? When the Sabbath and Passover get in the road of crucifying an innocent man, that's the problem that the Jews have right now in this text, right? Not only was it the Passover, it was a special Passover, uh, not only the Sabbath, a special one, the Passover Sabbath. And so they're a little bit worried because obviously they're going to have to deal with the body on the Passover Sabbath uh, and they don't want to have to do that. The Romans regularly leave the bodies up there for two or three days to die, uh, and then they would leave them up there for the vultures to consume. So bodies would stay on the cross for a long period of time. Uh, The Jews, however, had a belief that if you left the body up there for too long, it would contaminate the ground. And so they didn't like the bodies to be up there that long, and so hence they want to speed the whole process up, have the bodies taken away and buried before they hit the Sabbath. So they request of Pilate to have the men's legs broken. And the point being, of course, that if you had your legs broken, you could no longer push yourself up in order to continue to breathe. And so you would quickly choke to death. You would asphyxiate. Uh, Death would come far more quickly uh, and they could deal with the body much more readily. They even had a term for this uh, in Latin. It's called the curifragium. Uh, And that was the steel hammer that they would come and use to break legs to speed up the process. So this was a known thing. Uh, It used to occur, and that's what they want to do. Now, it seems though they started on either side, because we know from the Gospels Jesus was in the middle. So they break the legs of the two guys on the outside, and then they come to Jesus. As our text recorded, he had dismissed his spirit. Only Christ has the authority to give up his life. So the soldiers get to Jesus and they can see that he is dead. Just to make entirely sure, they get a spear and they ram it up through his side. And immediately, blood and water flow out. Now, medical experts tell us that if there has been severe chest trauma... Up to two litres of hemorrhagic fluid gathers between the lining of the rib cage and the lung. This separates with clearer serum at the top and darker red at the bottom, and a pierce to the lower chest cavity would cause both to flow. So this is what we can read from the medical experts. Q 
Can you guys imagine what my week's like through the week, by the way? When I'm just sitting there researching about what happens when you jam a spears through someone's chair. Anyway, good times in the office, I tell you. All right. Now, people see a lot of symbolism in this. That the water represents baptism and the blood communion. You can read a whole lot of symbolism about that, that that's what they see. And I think perhaps maybe more accurately, if we're going to draw symbolism out of this, that the blood and water symbolize life and cleansing from sin. The life, uh, the life of blood and the cleansing of water. And this is what's inspired many songs. So, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Or this one. Have you ever wondered about these words? Worthy is the lamb. We sing it here. Thank you for this love, Lord. Thank you for the nail-pierced hands. Wash me in your cleansing flow. Now all I know, your forgiveness and embrace. Have you ever wondered about that language? Wash me in your cleansing flow. So this is all coming out of the, the symbolism of the idea of the blood and the water flowing from the side. Now, I would say in all of these, we can only take them so far. They feel slightly stretched to me. Here's what John really, really, truly wants us to grasp. Jesus was dead. It's that simple. This is what John truly wants us to know. In verse 35, John tells us, he was an eyewitness to these things, Jesus, who was truly God and truly man, died. And this is of critical importance because some will argue that he was not truly dead and that's why he was able to rise again after three days. He was just unconscious and so therefore he was able to rise again. Others will argue throughout history that Jesus did not dwell bodily, that he was mere a spiritual form. And the importance of what John is saying here is, no, I saw them pierce his side and he was dead. The blood and the water signify that beyond anything else. So it's good imagery, but what is truly happening is that Jesus died to pay the penalty of your sin and his death was real. Amen? Right? This is what John is driving hard to us. Now, I find it hard that people question this, by the way. The Roman flogging often led to death. It sometimes um, disemboweled people. It always exposed bone. I mean, it was brutal in and of itself, and that's what Jesus went through. Then he was crucified, left on a cross in exposure to slowly asphyxiate and die of thirst as well. Then a guard, seeing that he was already dead, thrust a spear all the way through his chest cavity. And then he went three days without medical help and apparently just walked out, according to this theory. I would say to all the doctors in the church here this morning, you've been doing it wrong. If someone comes in to see you this banged up, just wrap them in bandages and send them home for three days and they'll be right as rain. Right? That, that's what this theory is saying. So, so many people are like, oh, he didn't actually die, he was just unconscious. Three days in bandages, that'll sort that out. No, 
No, no, no, no, blood loss alone. So you get my point. I really don't understand why people argue this. He was, however, dead. Again, John sees the hand of God all over this. These things happened so that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Again, we see things that no earthly person could organize. For Jesus' bones not to be broken when the other two men's were. How is that possible? If this was a conspiracy, how can you organize for the Romans not to break the legs of Jesus? No, this is by the hand of God. It seems as though this was in fulfillment of Exodus 12, 46. It is to be eaten in one house. You may not take any of the meat outside the house and you may not break any of its bones. That, of course, is in reference to the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb whose blood was spilt in order for the wrath of God to pass over the people. And the, lamb, the bones of the lamb were not to be broken. And here we have the ultimate Passover lamb in Jesus shedding his blood so the wrath of God will pass over the people to be paid on Jesus and his bones are not broken. You see the depth of the hand of God at play here? Right? Only God, only God can bring this about. Jesus is also referencing Zechariah 12.10. Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem. And they will look at me whom they pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps for a firstborn. Interesting passage. They will look at me whom they have pierced. It's the Father speaking in this passage. Now the Father did not go to the cross. Jesus went to the cross. But surely when they pierced the Son, it pierced the Father's heart. Right? The grief of the cross. The Father didn't go to the cross, but surely it pierced the heart of the Father when His Son was crucified. And at the cross, both Jewish disciples and Roman soldiers witnessed the piercing. And the day will come when they will mourn in either deep contrition or in grim despair as they look upon the one they pierced. This is what this passage is referring to. The day will come when they stand before the resurrected Lord and they'll have repented of crucifying the Son of God or they'll despair at their sin. The reality of the judgment of Christ. Moving along, John 19, 38 to 42. John 19, 38 to 42. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus' body. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took his body away. Nicodemus, who had previously come to him at night, also came, bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe. They took Jesus' body and wrapped it in linen cloths with the fragrant spices, according to the burial custom of the Jews. 
There was a garden in the place where he was crucified. A new tomb was in the garden. No one had yet been placed in it. They placed Jesus there because of the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby. Now, Joseph of Arimathea, we learn from the other Gospels, was a member of the Sanhedrin, as I mentioned, the ruling Jewish council. He was either a Pharisee or a Sadducee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the most powerful body over all of the Jewish people. We know that he was also very rich and that he was looking for the kingdom of God. So we know a fair bit about this guy. He's called a disciple of Jesus, but secretly in fear. Now, John typically doesn't give too much credence to the idea of a secret disciple, of someone who wants to follow Jesus without publicly acknowledging it. Go and read John chapter 12, if you doubt me, so you can write that down. Go and have a look at John chapter 12, but... Why I think John is prepared to make this statement so strongly here that he was in fact a disciple is because this act of bravery probably reveals his genuine nature as a disciple. Those crucified for sedition like Jesus were normally buried in a common grave outside of Jerusalem. For Joseph of Arimathea to come to Pilate and take the body to be buried in a burial tomb outed him as a disciple and would have put him offside with quite a lot of the other members of the Sanhedrin. So this is a huge public act of outing himself as a genuine disciple of Jesus. So quite a significant move and why I think John is prepared to say he was actually a disciple. Uh, the fact Pilate agrees to this is possibly because he never viewed Jesus is guilty of sedition anyway, and as we've talked about a lot in this, it's probably one more final dig at the Jews, who simply would not have wanted Jesus to have had this kind of proper burial, and yet nonetheless Pilate okays it. Um, so you just see that continual animosity there. We ran, then read that Nicodemus himself, a likely member of the Sanhedrin, comes as well. John mentions that he previously came at night in fear, but John may now be saying that he has stepped into the light. We have two men, both previously hidden their faith in Jesus, and now boldly coming into the light. Now boldly declaring publicly that they will honour Christ. Nicodemus' servants bring a large amount of burial spices the amount for an incredibly important person, the amount that he brings is usually the amount reserved for a king, right? So this is what Nicodemus brings, an incredibly amount, a very costly amount. The purpose was to simply stop the smell of decay. These didn't preserve like the Egyptian way of doing things. They simply wrapped the linen cloths in all of these spices, they put them under the body, they put them over the body, and the whole purpose was to stop the smell of decay. And so they use this vast amount on Jesus. They take him to a nearby tomb that Jesus alone was buried in. And as it was nearby, that was perfect because they wanted to do it from before the Sabbath. 
that Jesus, who is definitely dead, prepared and wrapped for burial, is now entombed. Now, how do we wrap all of this up this morning? Well, the most critical thing that everything else in this entire passage is supporting is that it is finished. Well, that's the most critical part. And everything around here, ensuring that we know that he truly did die, ensuring that we understand the burial procedures, it's all just to support the one major critical statement is that it is finished. Jesus truly did die on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. That we can be saved on the basis of Christ's death and resurrection alone. But some of you have been wrestling for a while. Some of you are like our friends, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, where you might even believe, but you're living in the dark. You don't want to come out at school and have to own the depth of your faith at university, at work. I'm a disciple, but I'm a disciple in secret. I don't actually want to have to live out the reality of having Christ alone as my master. Church, it's finished. Christ has paid the penalty of our sin. There is nothing man can do to us that can remove our salvation. There is no harm that can befall us that can take our salvation away because Christ has given us life eternal in his name. Church, there's a joy that should come from that and a confidence that should come from it because we know for a fact where we go when we die and that is to be with Christ forevermore. So what can the world do? Laugh at us? Who cares? I've got Jesus. Harm us? Who cares? I've got Jesus. Church, it's time to stop living in the dark and come out to the light. To be prepared like these men to, to make the change and to boldly stand up and say, no, I'm Christ's and I don't care who knows. Because he died for me. And in his name, I have life forevermore. It's finished. You can know for certain what happens after you die. But it comes through accepting Christ as your only master, bending your knee to his lordship, and then stepping into the light of his grace and boldly declaring Christ and Christ alone. That's what the passage wants us to wrestle with this morning. Church, I pray pray that you're willing to take that step. Let's pray. Lord, it is finished. I am saved on the basis of nothing I have done and nothing I will do. I'm saved because Jesus went to that cross and took the penalty of the wrath of God that I deserve. Lord, that's true of everyone who is ever saved. They are recipients of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Lord, how could we be ashamed of such a great Savior?
Lord, I pray for each of us, we would boldly step into the light, declare the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, what can the world do? They cannot take our salvation. It's granted by the death and resurrection of Jesus. So Lord, we thank you and we praise you in your precious name. Amen.